0: It is that good? Okay. Good morning. I'm back again part three two part series. I like that I like that. Um, if you take notes, if you take notes, will you write this at the top of your notes um, the perspective of eternity, the perspective of eternity. We're going to talk about that. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk. you're looking at me? Is that in the Bible? Yes, that is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Use Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Habakkuk is five books to the left. So you just count back till you get to... It's between uh, Nahum and Zephaniah. I know that helps everybody. Um, you know, one of the benefits of looking at an unfamiliar passage is you get to uh, know the character of God in deeper ways. You get to learn something that maybe you never knew before or even thought about. While you're turning there, I want to ask you a few questions. How many of you ever have found yourselves in circumstances that you never thought you'd face as God's child? It's supposed to be rhetorical, but that's okay. i raise my hand too. Or maybe you were caught off guard at something that he allowed to happen in your life. Or you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you walked away being just as unclear... About what God was doing in your life. If you can relate to those questions, this little passage, a little, it's a pretty good chunk that we're going to read through, um, is going to really speak to you. And I just want to, because I'm just going to assume um, that most of you are not familiar with the story of Habakkuk and what happens in his life. So I'm going to do for you what my wife did for me in seminary. Um, We had kind of different tracks. I was going to be a pastor, and she was going to be a counselor. And so we had some overlap in some of our classes. And before I would go into a class that had concepts that I wasn't familiar with, Cindy would run through the concepts with me so that when I heard them, it just really understood it faster. So I'm just going to summarize this little piece of history that we're about to drop down into And then we'll read it. And as we read it, I hope you're like, oh, that's what he talked about. Oh, that's what's going on. Hopefully, hopefully. Habakkuk was a prophet. And a prophet is somebody appointed by God to speak his words to his people. Habakkuk's a little bit different because instead of speaking to God's people about what God has said, he speaks directly to God about God's people. So Habakkuk is unique in that way. Um, Judah and its inhabitants were recipients of God's covenant. Covenant is a solemn promise between two groups of people, here being God and his people, Israel, which included the nation of Judah. God has this promise that he is committed via a promise he made to a man named Abraham way back in the Old Testament, back in Genesis 12. He is committed to blessing them. And he asks that Israel follow them with their whole hearts. And a good portion of the Old Testament describes the interaction between a holy and a loving God and the, and the nation of Israel, including Judah, who walk away from Him a thousand different ways. And we get to read about the character of God who lovingly and patiently calls them back using these prophets who appeal to the people for repentance and turning away and running back to God with their whole hearts. And the prophet Habakkuk finds him... T- his finds himself living in a time when Judah was in the midst of very, very wicked, evil kings. And so the culture all around him is really, really decrepit. Um, So they could respond to the senseless acts of violence that we have gotten used to in our culture. So the events we're reading about took place in the early 600s B.C., so we're talking 7th century. Um, A man named Jehoiakim is in power And there were many of the prophets that were sent to call to repentance over and over and over. And so far, we're getting ready to read, so far the response has been adamant, stubborn, unrepentance. And as a result, Habakkuk is just really weighed down with the burden of what it feels like to live in a really wicked culture. And what he says to God is, how long is this condition going to continue? How, how long? I mean, it's the, it's, you can relate to that question at least. How, lo- how long is this going to go on? Is what Habakkuk says. And God's response was that He was going to use an even more wicked nation, the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. Um, think of the version, the, the people that live in South Iraq. Those are the people we're talking about. He's going to use this group of people to bring judgment on Judah. <laughs> totally not what Habakkuk expected God to say. And it, it throws him. And instead of helping him understand, it confuses him even more. And in response, he appeals to God's character. I probably need to move this down. Um, he appeals to God's character, but ultimately he resigns himself to wait. And God's second reply is that he's ultimately going to judge the Chaldeans, these people in South Iraq. But then he points Habakkuk's attention to the future and he contrasts the outcome of all these things that are going to happen with two different kinds of people. The ones who trust in him and the ones who rely on themselves. That's just a summary of where we're going. So Habakkuk chapter 1, I'm going to read all of chapter 1, most of chapter 1, and to verse 5 of chapter 2. But you're going to hear some of the things that we've already talked about. Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Here's what he says How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? I cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. And justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And the Lord says this, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. They sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. And Habakkuk does this thing that we often do when God responds in a way that we don't expect. We try to appeal to God, almost like we're trying to talk Him out of what He's going to do. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Skip down to chapter 2. Habakkuk says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself at the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Your Word is beautiful, and we pray that Your Spirit would guide us as we look at a very unfamiliar uh, prophet in the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would take over and would tenderize the hearts of Your people so that what is said would be helpful and full of assurance and encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Many of you don't know me, so I'm just going to share this little fact about me. To get through college and save enough to go to seminary, I drove a trash truck for 12 years. 1988 to 2000 had me working for waste management, um, and I never thought I'd get off that truck. So if I tell you to get excited about a brand-new garbage truck, I'm probably going to have to sell it a little bit. Um, if, If only you had driven a dinosaur of a leech Truck. Many of you don't know what that is. It is an archaic piece of equipment with holes in the floorboard, a, a steering wheel larger than a large deluxe pizza. Um, it it uh, the the clutch on this thing feels like a Nautilus leg press. So that when you um, when you get in your car, if you're driving a stick shift, doesn't matter how long you've been driving, you're going to put your foot through the floor every day because you're so used to just cranking that thing, and it's just. Uh, you're, ultimately, you're driving through subdivisions maybe 40 miles in 20-foot increments. So you may get up to 5th, 6th gear, and you're still going 15 miles an hour. Are you getting a picture of this? All day long. Flies, sweat. It's just awful. Okay, so when I got a brand-new front-loader Mac garbage truck, oh, digital transmission. No more leg press. No more heavy... This is a beautiful $275,000 piece of equipment. All right. You all got a picture? That's where I am. I'm in my brand-new front-loader garbage truck. I'm going down I-70. Travis, you with me? All right. We're going down I-70. He's the only one, I think. Uh, I-70, and in front of me, I'm just checking along. You don't know. A Mack truck has the windshields come straight down. See, the whole world is your office. You know, that's what I told myself anyway. Um, so you just have this beautiful front row seat of, uh, of the highway. And in front of me is one of those trucks. You've all seen them on the highway. It's the pickup truck. It's uh, It was um, new before Larry Bricker was conceived. Uh, it's a really old pickup truck. The The frame is bent. I asked him if I could pick on him today. The frame is bent. You could hit the side of it and not know which dent belonged to you. The junk in the back is... So high, you're wondering, is he going to clear that overpass? And there's rope tied, cattywampus all around it. The frame is bent such that every time he hits a bump, he's making sparks. You know? All right, you got a picture? That's what's in front of me. And I'm looking at this guy kind of shaking my head. You get a picture. And immediately, up on my left, I see it coming up. Police car. With the lights go And I'm like, oh. And I'm thinking, this is going to be good because he slides right in front of me. And I'm going... Front row seats, this is great. And instead of pulling the guy in front of me over, he turns over his shoulder, points like that at me, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Are you blind? Come on. I mean, come on. And there goes Mr. Sanford, just down the road, totally ignored, and I pull over. And all always to say, you know what? Justice does not look as we often expect it should look. And what I thought should happen and what actually happened, really, really far away from each other. Not even close. And I'm positive it's what Habakkuk experienced. Because what he thought should happen and what actually happened, really, really far apart from each other. Within God's reply to Habakkuk is this distinct wisdom that I want to focus on this morning. Because part of the way God responds to Habakkuk is not an explanation, like we expect. But it's this analysis describing two ways of living. Essentially, a life with or without God. Which really only makes sense in the long-haul perspective of eternity. So just a real simple outline, if you're one of these people that takes notes. Number one, the one who relies on himself. And number two, the one who relies in, in faith upon God. Faith, just to remind ourselves, it's a confident expectation in what God says will happen is actually going to happen. It's something that you can't see, but you are positive that it's going to happen. All your hope, all your confidence is there. Uh, Just talking about the one who relies on himself, in this passage we're talking about the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, chapter 1, verse 11. If you have it, it's really going to be helpful throughout this morning if you have Habakkuk uh, the passage open in your laps. I was going to say Habakkuk in your laps, but that just doesn't sound good. <laughs> the book of Habakkuk opened in your laps. Look at the description, verse 11. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. They don't rely on anybody but themselves. They are 100% self-reliant. What God says is going to happen or what they should do, their role in his plan, no bearing in their lives whatsoever. They do what they want, when they want. They take what they want. Their lives appear to be untouchable, invincible, and by every appearance, they gain. looks like they're not even accountable. It's part of what Habakkuk is complaining about. They're not intimidated. Their only limit is their imagination. Everything's theirs for the taking. And to, and to me, I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty good to me. Um, and what, what surprises me is we're describing people that are doing it all wrong. And this is Scripture. So I would expect, since this is Scripture, that people who are doing it all wrong would be explained or described in a different manner. Wouldn't you? These are people who do what they want. And it almost seems like God is bragging on them. Look at verse 7. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dawn. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. Habakkuk is saying, they're awful. And God's saying, I know, right? Check out their army. What what are you doing here? Verse 10, they mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities, by building earthen ramps that capture them. What's what's a barrier? What's authority to them? They're unstoppable. They're guilty. Their own might. What they do by themselves, this is their God. And they're used to winning, thriving, confident, successful, uncontested, all these things. And within this description is this invisible quality here to serve as a warning. You can see it if you can see it. They tend to be proud because everything they do is from their own strength. They live for the moment. And anything that brings me happiness, and that's the emphasis, what's going to make me happy, that's their goal. What's wrong with this? Lots of things, actually. Proverbs says this, 28:26. whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Why would God say it this way? Whoever whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Why wouldn't God say whoever doesn't trust in God is a fool? Because if your own mind is your God, there's every appearance of advantage. And here by God's own description, it's true. But there's limitation because you can only do so much by yourselves, And whatever limits me frustrates me. And whatever frustrates me makes me angry. And I'm just stuck because there's nowhere to go. Things look to be going well for these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, except from the perspective of eternity. And I would challenge that if you asked a Chaldean, a Babylonian, about eternity, you're likely to get a scoff. Or a, what? Eternity? Yeah. Whatever. Or they'd make fun of you, or they'd laugh, or they'd just look the other way and ignore you. And Habakkuk appeals to God's unexpected response. I didn't expect you to brag on these people. I sure didn't expect you to tell me that they're going to come in and take over our area. That's not what I expected. We're already suffering. Are you listening? This is what Habakkuk does not catch the first time. It's that the perspective of eternity, it just changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And this is one of the things I want us to see. It is very easy to make wrong conclusions when what we think should happen doesn't happen. It's a huge deterrent to our prayers. When you're praying for one thing, Lord, I know this is God's will for my unsafe family member. I know that he wants this to happen, and it looks like uh, it's actually going the other way. There's a young man that I'm discipling. Discipling. I scoff at myself. When I got to know him at a grief camp that we did in 2007, um, my only, no, you know, his dad had died, and I asked his mom, is there any positive male role model in his life? i like, I'm going to do that. And she said, no, there isn't. And I really connected with him. So every other week, I would get together with Robbie. And that was 2007. It's 2016 now, so nine years later. Gosh, nine years. Um, he is way further away by appearances. He is further away from the gospel than he ever was back in 2007. He is 22 years old. Uh, almost drank himself to death week before last weekend. Said he'll never do it again. <laughs> you know how that goes. Um, Lord, all I, the only hill to die on with Robbie is that he know the gospel. That's all I want. He's even further away. And so this passage speaks to my heart because what I think should happen and what's actually happened is really far away from each other. God's second reply to Habakkuk is that he's paying attention it's what Habakkuk thinks he isn't doing. But God reveals an answer that, the, that what Habakkuk seeks is actually going to be played out over a much longer period of time. Um, it's what I say when I say, Lord, why aren't things fair, like at all? And God says, I am paying attention. And looks and appearances are very, very deceiving, except through the perspective of eternity, of forever and this different perspective from God on the ones who are like the Babylonians, these Chaldeans, on the one who looks self-reliant. Look at it with me. Chapter 2, verse 4, the very first part. The one who is characterized as being proud, the same one that God was seemingly bragging on just a moment ago. They are not upright. They are not living as they should. Even further, verse 5. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Do you hear what this one is saying? This one is short-sighted. And and whatever it is that they're depending on, um, here, wine, but we could say reputation, um, notoriety, the things that you do well, whatever it is that they're relying on that's not God, instead of God, is ultimately going to betray them. Ultimately. Ultimately. They're going to come up short. Over the perspective of eternity, of forever. It's God's commentary on the last chapter for the one who relies on themselves. Because when things are good, they're really, really good. They are so good that even the righteous around them will accuse God of not paying attention because he missed this little detail. Very important to see this. A life without God that has as its goal the pursuit of happiness is powerful enough to tempt the ones that are doing everything by faith to be jealous because it's that authentically deceiving to a believer, to a believer. So we see that when things are good, they're really good, but when they're bad, they're really, really bad. You're going to thrive for a while, but over the perspective of eternity for forever... If your own might is your God, your own might will ultimately betray you. And then this small commentary on the righteous. Who they are and what they do. Look at it with me. Second part of verse 4. Chapter 2. But the righteous will live by his faith. What does that mean? Living by faith. It's a confidence. It's a belief in God and His promises that's not rooted in what can be seen. It's taking God completely at His word. If we live by faith, we always have our eyes on what God is going to do regardless of what can be seen. That's the hard part, for my own heart anyway. Faith requires a belief, does not have the luxury of sight. I read that. I wrote it down. I like that. doesn't have the luxury of sight. I fully believe that Robbie will come to know the Lord. And I tell him that regularly. And before we eat, I pray that God would lead him to himself. And sometimes I can just Feel the smirk, even though our eyes are closed. I can just feel the smirk. Um, It emphasizes that an action that will be taken on belief is going to happen because God says it's going to happen. Period. It can feel so foolish when your eyes betray you. When I drop off Robbie and I'm driving away, there's part of me that's like, I am awful at this. I can't even believe that I ever work with you. Um, I just, I feel like I'm flying blind here. The one who has faith banks fully on God's word over and above what can be seen or proven. But it just feels foolish when your eyes betray you. There's a mission trip um, that the church where where Cindy and I go, Decatur Presbyterian, goes on every year, to the Dominican Republic. And we do all kinds of outreach and ministry with these people that live in tiny little huts and have zero resources and um, we live in this bunkhouse that's made of cinder blocks that I always like to joke lets in the rain but not the wind. It's so hot in that building that you just kind of have to lay in your little bunk and just wait till you're exhausted enough to sleep. There's an oscillating fan up at the top that kind of goes like this. So you want the top bunk. Even if you're not a top bunk person like me, I want to fall out of my bed at the night and break something. It's worth it to be up there because you're going to get that fan that spins just for that maybe second and a half as it hits you. So um, so we're up on the top bunk and uh, it's it's getting near night and we, we flip on the switch and the fan just sits there. And I'm like, oh, it's miserable enough with the fan. I need the fan. I need that second and a half. Um, we've got to, you know, and it's just, this is, a, this is a fan that looks like it was old before both the brickers were conceived. Both the brickers were conceived. This fan, nobody's fixing this fan, ever. Um, so it's not working. And I looked around at my little team and I said, you know, because you're thinking you should pray about this, but that's not going to work. And I don't want to pray for something that's not going to work because then you'd feel dumb. Am I the only one who does this? No, come on. Now? We're in a third world country. There's no lows. We don't know how to work that thing. Um, So I said, we're we're here telling these people how to have faith, telling them what to believe. It's me and uh, three other men. So I said to George Godwin, we should pray. And he looks at me and goes, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. it was not an eloquent prayer at all. Here's how it went. Lord, um, we're here uh, doing your work. And this little fan gives us a measure of relief, and we need it. And we pray that you would cause it to work. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we're all just kind of sitting there looking at the ground. It's like, is it too soon to look, you know? Look up, nothing. Just sitting there. And you're like, well, I mean, you'd feel dumber if you didn't try, you know, right? Maybe an hour later, Zach Cameron goes to the the doorway, and he goes, we're intelligent men, right? Now, I know that's rhetorical. Uh, I guess so. Are we intelligent? Um, And he says, this light switch goes to the light, but this dial over here goes to the fan. He turns it on. It spins right up. I'm like, oh, yeah, look at that. Okay, so how do you view that? You go, what? I mean, you know, the unbeliever would say, well, you're just an idiot and you just forgot, you know. But we pray. I think it's a direct result of faith. It's exercising, Lord, that what we say will happen in your name will happen in your name. It's this beautiful thing that happens uh, when we trust, even though your sight um, deceives you. Habakkuk is somebody that is living by faith. You know how we know that? Because it takes faith even to ask the question if God is there. If he's not there, you feel kind of foolish. Habakkuk had other options for how he could have responded. And really for anyone who sees this inconsistency by what you experience in your world and what you believe in faith will happen. Habakkuk could have responded to his culture as many unbelievers around us respond. Could have disregarded, could have doubled down and scoffed, made fun of the notion of a God who controls anything. Lots of people do this. You rub shoulders with them, I do too. He could have shrugged his shoulders and poured himself even more into things that numb or distract. This is what I see in my work with uh, people that are grieving. Anything that takes me out of this moment is my number one go-to. And that's what I'm going to send my heart to. Um, Just take me out of this moment. If I don't have the Lord, I'm going to find that relief in a hobby, in working more, in alcohol, in a substance, in a destructive behavior, whatever it is. But Habakkuk takes his complaint to God. And it's very important to consider because if he's not there, then it's foolish, really crazy to go there. There isn't a God. Um, There's far more questions to answer if he's not. There's an order to the world that we live in. Family resemblance will forever be one of my go-tos of evidence of a God. You've got these trillion people living on the planet, but you take a family and their kids and they all look alike, they sound alike. There's a man in my church. I can close my eyes and I feel like I'm talking to Skip Thompson, shaved 30 years off, because the voice is exactly right and the mannerisms are just right. And I mean, all of the options, it's, just, it's amazing, the complexities of the human body, these breathtaking landscapes, the way Rhesus figured out the beautiful measure between chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> When they put those two together, I mean, something spiritual happens in my mouth where my tail is wagging so fast you can't even tell which way it's going. That's evidence of a creator in my mind. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So think about it with me logically or, or at least try on the understanding that if this world has a creator, if, if God is the sovereign creator of all things, the controller of the universe, if that's true then following Him just makes logical sense. If it's true, and that's what you ought to be doing. If not, if none of that is true, then I'm on my own to just play God and make up the very best thing I can. But it's all on my shoulders. Habakkuk goes to God. He believes He's there even though he cannot see Him. And he expresses himself, and then he resigns himself to wait. Think about how much of the Christian life is just waiting. A lot. A lot. But remember, God's reply not only demonstrates that he's attentive, but also that the outcome that Habakkuk sought would be played out over a much longer period of time. So what does it mean? What does it mean? The one who is righteous, who is upright, who is just, who is true, you and I live our lives by what we believe about God and his promises. That's the way we live our lives. By what God says will happen, that's where our heart and affections remain. That what you say is going to happen is going to happen. And even if I don't understand why you would call me to do that, I'm going to do that because I believe you and I trust you. And it's only foolish if there isn't a God. Scripture commends that there's no lasting life apart from this faith in God. The righteous the upright, the just, the pure, they live by faith, a confidence in what they can't see. We find this phrase, the righteous will live by faith. It's repeated three times in the New Testament. I want us just to look at one of them. It's in the book of Romans. Um, Romans is a book that describes in detail the doctrine of the gospel, of this good news that we hold close, it describes how to have a relationship with a God who's perfect and holy. It describes a righteousness, this way of being right with God that comes from God. Not from ourselves, from God. Because on my own, I need help. I am sinning a million different ways. You're sinning a million different ways. We don't need to talk about who's worse. I would probably win. Um, if God demands holiness and perfection from me, I'm going to miss it every single time. In my thought, in my words, in my actions, everything that I do. Um God demands holiness from me and He does and I'm in trouble immediately. And this is where God describes what has to happen. Everything in the Old Testament points to a righteousness. This way of being made right before God that comes not from myself. comes from one who is coming, a Messiah who is coming, who will make that happen. And being a Christian means having a recognition of my own need, of being poor in spirit. The poor in spirit recognize their need, that I'm not righteous by myself, and a belief that God can give me His righteousness, not on what I do, but what on Jesus Christ does on my behalf. It's The message of the Gospel. Jesus Christ is made man, and He lives the life that I am incapable of living. And God deals with my sins by punishing Not me, but Christ. And Christ bears my punishment and I get his record of righteousness. The message of the Gospel. The life he lived before going to the cross is given to me as a gift. You don't do anything for it. You receive it freely as a gift. And my only part is a recognition of that need and a belief that what Jesus did was for me, on my behalf. So that when God sees me, my sin is taken care of by the punishment of Christ, that he sees that his own son's blood covers me, and in God's eyes I'm righteous. And all of this is by faith, this confident belief in what can't be seen. Look at Romans 1 if you're there, and this is one of the places, the only one that we'll look at this morning. Um, Romans 1, verse 17, quoted back from Habakkuk, way back in Habakkuk. Verse 17, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I want to close with uh, a question that I've been asking of people all around me for months. And it's a question that I want you to think about after we leave here. Throughout the week. Those of you who are believers, I want you to think about this. What is the greatest evidence of your faith? What is the greatest evidence of your faith? What we're saying is, what would you point to in your life, in your experience of living, that you would say, this is because of the faith that I have in Christ? I want to summarize some of the answers that I got from people, and it's not a complete list. These are just three of the most common answers that I received. One young man told me I can experience joy in the midst of sorrow. Can't do that if I don't have faith. He told me about a time when a whole bunch of his family members died at the same time, and he said it is awful. And I even had a friend tell me you make me nervous to be your friend because everyone around me is just dropping. And he said, even in the midst of all these losses, I just have this odd sense of joy. And it's not a smile, skip down the road kind of joy, but it's this quieting, comforting, assuring, nourishing, compassionate, unmistakable sense of joy and peace that I have. And I know it's because of my faith. That's one answer. Second one, I asked the pastor in Coleman. And he said, uh, gosh, Brad, that's a tough question. I would say the answer is more historical because I know how things are going to end. I read the end of the book, and I know how everything pans out. Because of that, and my faith is there, I don't wring my hands when I look at the things that are going on around me. And I'm not consumed with anxiety or uncertainty when I think of wars and rumors of wars, and, and the election. I mean, there are people that are sick with anxiety over this election. Um, and my mom called me last night, and she said, Brad, I've taken Valium because I'm so sick over this election. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, mom, what are you doing? hope she doesn't listen to this. Um, it's one advantage of being south of the Mason-Dixon line, eliminate the drop-in. Thirdly... Uh, man that I go to church with back in Decatur he he would say "My, uh, my answer to that question is more experiential. Here's what he said I remember what I was like before I became a Christian and I remember what I was like after he said every good gift that was given to me I twisted it to make it about me to my own credit, to my own glory. I was a good student I was a good athlete, I was a good son I was a good parent but unexpectedly, there was so much more freedom moving from being self-reliant to relying on God. So much more freedom. And he said, and the, the way that I live now is, is summed up by this hope, this invitation to dream and being free to love other people because I know that I'm loved. And it's not on me to make something work. It's not on me to provide for my own needs. God promises, I'm going to provide for all your needs according to my riches in Christ Jesus. So there's a freedom that I never had before. The righteous will live by faith. The one who truly believes is declared righteous by God and will live in faith for the entirety of his or her life. The one who is righteous through faith has life. You know what, that only makes sense through the perspective of a forever, of eternity. Because oftentimes what you think should happen isn't what happens. But over the course of eternity, trusting God to work out all of His promises in our lives as His people is a beautiful thing. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Your Word gives us amazing hope. And we pray that Your Spirit would have Your way in our hearts by reminding us that we're yours, that we belong to you, and that through our faith, that confident expectation that what you say will happen in our lives will happen is the missing ingredient that gives us life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.